Bill, we've been in the middle of the uh, the PAPN-a-thon, phone-a-thon, pledge drive. We never really gave it an official name. That's okay. We really didn't do anything extra either. We yeah, did well, like five podcasts last week. We did one. The idea was to do more podcasts than we did. It was to have uh, a lot of illustrious industry insiders on <laughs> to increase the value of the program and thus – um, you know, a value add, as they say in the marketing business, um, and inspire people to go to your Kickstarter. So as we record this right now, there are eight, probably when the listeners get this, seven days to go on your Kickstarter. You have 470 backers, and from your $22,000 goal, you have $20,530. Yep. What is the quick math on that? Uh, 15. Oh, about 14, yeah, about 1470 to go here. Okay. Well, I feel like we kind of struck out, even though the number increased, which I think is a sign of benevolence. So um, as I introduce our guest this week, it really comes down to not a matter of acumen or or expertise or insight or knowledge. (laughs) It's just, is this person worth $1,400 for the next 60 minutes? Is this person's, well, is this person's... um, is what this person brings worth $1,400? I don't know. Probably not. Welcome, Ryan Nanny. Um, so many people just immediately s- deleted this podcast, possibly unsubscribed. I, <sighs> I actually assumed you were bringing me on because the Kickstarter is going so well that you wanted to pump the brakes and add a little bring mystery. <laughs> bring the cooler out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, $20,000. Shit, Bill, that's pretty damn impressive. I do, I do like the idea of, of someone running up a hot streak in Vegas, and then you're the guy who comes out and says, "Hey, everybody, <laughs> hit on nine. That's, that's not that's not that incorrect. So, well, I just I just you know you left me hanging last week. I blatantly insulted you at the beginning of the Feldman podcast and got no response. I'm like, man, I hope I hope he didn't actually think I was being mean there. Oh no, but that is that is the only way that is the only way to really burn someone on the internet is to say nothing. That's true, and it works. Made me insecure. He, he, that was the podcast version of the ignore of the mute button. Uh huh. Yeah, I felt pretty good. Instead of the block button, which gives people a sick satisfaction, as uh, as we've all learned, because our industry is great. I think I think the important thing is we don't need one person to think this is worth fourteen hundred dollars of their time. We just need like a hundred people to think that this is worth fourteen dollars of their time. <laughs> I, I can I feel like I can meet that standard. All right. Well, we're gonna find out. That's pre- I mean that's. Fourteen dollars, so, so like one matinee of a Fast and Furious film, or or or, or other ba- a bad movie, perhaps. And uh, I, I will say, we don't actually have to get all the way to fourteen hundred because if you, if last night is any indication, my parents wanted the satisfaction of getting me to twenty thousand, so they like jumped in with a little bid to b- boost it to exactly twenty thousand. So if we get to like you know twenty one nine fifty, I'm pretty sure I know who's jumping in with the last fifty dollars. I, I like the idea that this whole thing is is I don't want to speak to like generation or culture or anything, but I think that we totally erred and not mar- like not marketing directly towards concerned moms. Like the, the 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 whole like that's so cute contingent where they would have just dropped you. They probably would have given you larger donations without any of the incentive tiers. They don't care. Oh I mean, man, they so, don't want to. They don't want to tailgate with you. They just think you're project. <laughs> so mostly uh, through this process, this terrifying process of, of finding out if people think you're worth money. Um, it's been you know mostly solid days during the week, and then the weekend just dies. Um, you know nothing happens over the weekend, and so basically on Monday morning, my mom will be wringing her hands because now she thinks it's not going to happen. 
Um, and then Monday it'll be a good day and everything's fine again. But we've, we've fallen for that like three times now and, and they just swooped in. I, I got the, uh, the, the awesome Bill Barnwell retweet Saturday morning. So Saturday ended up being a good day this time. Sunday wasn't, and therefore we, it was time to wring our hands again. But I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna make this. This is why you need to, you know, there's a reason why people have bring their kids to the office or take them door to door because it's harder to say no to a child. So you just need to enlist your listeners' children to go to their communities and say, hey, we're raising money for this college football book. It has nothing to do with my education or well-being, but I'm cute, so give me $20. Oh, just wait till I have the four-year-old record Buy My Daddy's Book when it actually comes out in a few months. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be straight to the New York Times bestseller list. Good, good. All right. You didn't tell me about the Barnwell retweet. I think that means I've secretly entered into a contract where I have to give him like a private wrestling story time audience for two to three hours, which is what happens every time I drink with Bill Barnwell anyway. So. Um, we have zero agenda um, because we're trying to mimic the uh, wild popularity of Ryan's podcast, Shut Down Fullback. We have uh, zero schedule. We have solicited uh, hastily for some questions. I'm seeing a few roll in, Bill. Um, I don't have anything on the docket as far as hard news. Um, Bill, actually, in all seriousness, do we have anything to promote this week before we just get into the, uh, the digression? Uh, well, this afternoon is going to is is the Idaho preview. Uh, the Idaho. Oh, okay. okay. Well, show topic done. <laughs> the Idaho preview will, uh, I guess, go to print, so to speak, right after we find out whether um, they're going to be kicked out of the Sun Belt or not. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm really kind of curious about this. I, you know, I. I it, nobody has a chip on their shoulder like Idaho has a chip on their shoulder. And this kind of stinks because kicking them out of the Sun Belt would mean a bigger chip, which is kind of entertaining, but it would also probably mean they don't end up in FBS for too much longer. And that means I don't get to talk about them too much longer. So that's, I don't know. I'm kind of torn here. I kind of hope they hold, they get, uh, they hold on just because I like being able to talk about two Petrinos in each, uh, you know, preview series. Do we have a, uh, if we have a focus group um, of listeners, I don't think it's probably the best skew, but if you're interested in us going to Idaho, myself, possibly, maybe Roger Sherman at SB Nation, let us know because we've debated about actually going to a game in Moscow for I think two or three years now it's come up. Um, we're actually about to have our college football meetings here soon. So I, off the top of my head, I think if they lose affiliation, they would still, just because of scheduling and contracts and stuff, they would still have to play out a Sunbelt schedule, right, Bill? Uh, well, they, yeah, they are through 2017, so they will have two more years of Sun Belt, no matter what. What uh, is a like? What is a lame duck? What is a lame duck group of five conference member like? What is the behavior pattern like? Oh God, I mean, they already have the chip on their shoulder. It's going to be, you know, they already like. I'm trying to remember what game it was last year. They injured a quarterback. Um, they they they've kind of played to their role a little bit, and and then they'll be not only just the you know the angry chip on the shoulder cousin that you forget about sometimes they'll be the really angry potentially hostile uh chip on the shoulder angry cousin that you wish you weren't related to so, so they're, they're, they're trashing every ramada inn that they stay at between like <laughs> Jones, jonesboro and statesboro yeah see again they the sunbelt should just understand what's best for it and and not have to deal with that and just say okay fine you can continue to be our hawaii i like this because they can just sort of they can act like they're going to flee the country and just run up the credit card, show wanton disregard for their fans, you know, people in general, and just fade fade into the sunlight. It's a pretty good plan. They can Thelma and Louise it, basically. 
and, and 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 that couldn't. I'm not saying it should. It will, but I do know they they have Missouri on the schedule in 2017, don't they? Oh God, I think you're right. I think. Oh, that, no. I think that's where you start start doing something stupid. Uh, That's crap. when you have to have a security guard with them every time you sign them for a one-in-one just to make sure they're not stealing, like, towels. Like, because they're going to go for the most basic stuff possible. Clock radio in the hotel room. They need it. Like, oh, man, yeah, 2017. October 21st, dude, that's going to be, like, homecoming. Be like, who pooped in this vending machine, Idaho? <laughs> you go to a Goodwill market somewhere in, like, Boise, and there's, like... <laughs> 350 Missouri dry fits. There's a lot of helmets here from Missouri. What's that about? Uh, Whatever we can steal. Yeah. Uh, this just got personal. I don't like it anymore. <laughs> See? That's not so funny now, is it? Um, okay, so that's it. Um, got, <laughs> well, okay, we do have questions rolling in, so we're going to be fine. Well, uh, uh, let me actually, there is one other thing I'm doing this week as part of, you know, promotion. <clears throat> Bill, I, God, he ruins... I, you know, it's nice to have Ryan on the show just to talk about how much Bill ruins the curve for the rest of us in terms of production at this company. I mean, I, 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 just, I just ignore Bill. It, it actually works out a lot better that way. I pretend that Bill is just sort of like some automated, you know, Twitter bot, and he's just pumping these things out, and there's not a real person doing it. When we go through the actual, like, the college football writer's room every week, and they're like, so what does everybody have? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm making these phone calls. I've reached out to these people. We should have a draft on this maybe next week. And then you go to Bill, and it's just like, oh, here it comes. Everybody's getting a C-minus now. Yep. Bill's like, yeah, I built a rocket just because I felt like it. Uh, you know, I, I just, I, I have no commute. I just stand in my kitchen, and I write from, like, 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. And, and you know. Uh, and it's, uh, one day somebody will tell me to stop, but nobody has, so I'm just going to keep doing it. And if somebody tells me to stop, I will probably ignore it and just keep going anyway. I think it would just be easier, Bill, if we could, if we all were like, "Well, Bill is a sad bachelor," but it's like, "Oh wait, no, Bill has a fulfilling family life as well." Fucking yes, Bill. I know. <laughs> By the way, I don't have a commute either, Bill. That's but not you travel. Healthy. You travel. You're, you're going to like, uh, you know, coast to coast over the next. Actually, few yes. Months. Tomorrow I will go to Arizona, where I hopefully, hopefully it will be warm and the rich rod will be extra, extra uh, zesty. <laughs> See, picante, I believe, is the word you're looking for. <laughs> new rich, uh, new contract, rich rod. I mean, we haven't had that in a long time. I think he had an extension right before he left West Virginia, but come on. I mean, that's that that's going to be a that's going to be a very low given f uh a rich rod on the SID meter. I, I hope it's going to it's yeah. going to be loose out. There. I hope he's just wearing caftans to practices at this point. Oh yeah. No doubt. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Bill, what about, I, I always like this uh Ryan if you haven't listened to every episode sometimes uh in extreme laziness and deference to Bill, I'll just sort of map out the editorial uh with Bill on the air. <laughs> what are we uh what are we looking at when we look at Arizona, Bill? Uh, Arizona, uh, their defense was hilariously passive and terrible last year. Um, offense was actually, you know, they had like 50 million injuries, but they were still pretty decent on offense, but the defense just lost everything. And well, they lost their Scooby and then they, they, they had absolutely nothing to offer the rest of the year. So there's your, I, I mean, he parted ways with Castile. He loves Castile or at least, you know, loved you know, working with Castile, uh, having Castile's defense and it just stopped producing at all. And so lots of change. So just like a less tangy Texas tech. Yeah. I mean, it suddenly became a lot more like Texas tech than the normal. They actually, I mean, when Scooby was, was going crazy a couple of years ago, they actually had a, you know, at least a solid defense. Um, and, and Castile's had a lot of solid defenses through the years, but yeah, this last year it just, it died. It completely died. 
Okay. All right. Um, so Bill and I have talked on this show before about um, affiliation. And Bill, the last time I saw you, you had a Missouri like a Missouri windbreaker on. And the time before that, I saw you, you had, you had Missouri gear on. I think I picked you up from the airport one time. Um, how many, and we won't, we won't dedicate any, any time to your shoe fetish. And it is a fetish. Um, <laughs> how, how much Missouri gear would you say you own? So I, there's a funny thing. If I'm out, I wear Mizzou stuff. And at home, I wear all the other crap that I've compiled through the years. So like soccer shirts and, mm-hmm. UCLA shirt and all the schools that I've been to. Okay. Um, so in that, like, well, okay. I just, I just blew it. I just looked down at the shirt I'm wearing. It's a Mizzou shirt, but um, you know, I, my, my wife has been an employee of the university for a long time. I used to be, that means, you know, 25% off on Fridays before game days. That means t-shirts. So I, I, I probably got uh, 20 Missouri t-shirts and like probably three hoodies and a little pullover and all this other stuff to go along with my, you know, Sheffield Wednesday pullover and Puma this and that. So yeah, nice collection, nice cross section of Mizzou Puma and random soccer stuff. Danny, how much, what would you say you own in terms of parcels of of Florida gear? Um, I know I have a hoodie that I basically never wear. Okay. Uh, I think I have a hat somewhere stashed in a closet. And other than that, that's it. Okay. I have I have zero miscare, um, but and I won't get into the, the spiel again like we do on the show where I have to be the objective reporter guy and all that crap. But I I've, I just have never owned it because before I had this job, I had other jobs where you know objective like this this insane, unrealistic idea of complete and total objectivity was sort of foisted on you when you work in the print media. So I've never had a lot of like gear stuff. I have a degree that I don't have hung up anywhere because I mean. I think on the back is a Hardy's coupon that is probably still good. So might have to break that open soon. I don't have any of that kind of like stuff. So there's never been a way to identify me by my alma mater. Prefer it that way, honestly. So I, uh, I go to the gym the other day. Well, actually, I guess I have to back up. Um, I, I've never had a lot of college gear in general. Um, last year when we, I was embedded at Georgia Southern, um, I guess this is a media ethics violation, which is fine admitting this on the air because I don't think management's listening. But I packed for probably four and a half days when I was actually going to be on the road for about eight. So as the as the week wore on, I got up one day in a coach's office. And I said, hey, I'm going to go hit the gym at my hotel. Is there like a sporting goods store around here? You know, I'm, I'm kind of I, I didn't pack enough and I was going to get like some workout clothes. And the guy just kind of laughed at me. He's like, hang on a second, like hits a button. And then these people from the equipment room come up and they give me Georgia Southern gear to work out <laughs> in, which I, I think is fine because I actually grew up like when when you could actually see a game in person in the FCS, I would I would be a Georgia Southern fan. That's where my parents went to college. I really don't think anything of it. Gratefully take the two shirts. I think I gave one to my dad. Um, but the, the one they gave me was like the nice, uh, like moisture wicking, like the, the good stuff, right? Like the legit workout. I was like, this is, this is nice. Like, you know, bonus $45 shirt. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm living right. I don't think anything of it. Flash forward to this past weekend. It's still a little chilly in Nashville. My gym has a parking garage attached to it. It's downtown. I'm weaving my way, like walking through this parking garage, um, and I've always been, I guess, paranoid. Uh, it goes back to like Mississippi State fans telling me this in person. Members of the Mississippi State media who are Mississippi State graduates, they would do this for years. They say, 
you claim to be objective one day you know i know you've got some old misgear we'll catch you in it one day this incredibly insane that like uh warning from them so i've always been paranoid about it i'm walking out of the gym and i hear uh i've got like taking my earbuds out and i hear georgia southern f you and then another dirty word that i won't repeat uh, and i turn around and it's it's probably a guy who's five five if he's if he's five feet at all um, but he's also about five feet wide. He's like the, the weightlifter bro guy getting out of a completely Dr. Bla- completely Dr. blacked out SUV. Doctor, you got you got yelled at by a Florida Dr. Robotnik. <laughs> yeah, pretty – okay, yeah, exactly. So uh, com- like completely blacked out SUV, like black wheels, black hubcaps, black like covers on the brake lights, and then the Florida alumni tag for Tennessee. And so sure enough, I get out and the guy's got, he's got on like the old school, like 90, late 90s era Florida shirt that's like cut up, you know, so he can show the guns off and everything. And it wasn't aggressive. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to fight you. It was just that, that good old like American sports fan shit talk. And so for a second, I was really excited um, just to be able to engage in that. Not that I could like say anything back to him, but it was, I was, it was weird. It caught me off guard. And then on my way home, I'm, I'm laughing more at this guy who, you know, this troll who rolled out of this awesome uh, murdered out Lexus. And I'm thinking to myself, is that the visceral reaction of the Florida fan to this day? Are they still pissed off about that game? And I don't really want to throw that to you, Ryan, but I just wanted to really I mean, share that for the room. You can. Because as someone who never gets to wear any co- college gear, on accident, I actually got into, I guess, a, a little bit of the shit talking tete-a-tete. Well, what I don't understand is if you're a Florida fan and you see someone in georgia southern gear which you especially in tennessee you assume is not i I mean you're not per se a georgia southern backer but you would assume that someone who's wearing that in nashville would be um why on earth would you go out of your way to engage them i would have gotten the car as fast as possible and peeled out of that like i do not there's nothing you can say that's worthwhile it's the worst conversation to possibly have there are still georgia southern fans on twitter who out, of oh, nowhere, who out of nowhere will just be like, hey, remember? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> it's it's sort of like having a a cousin who just punked the hell out of you at like a Thanksgiving football game or something. And and right. never let it go. 30 years, 40 years down the line. You're like, yeah, remember that time? I led you, I led you right uh, on a post route right into the tree in the backyard. Oh, you were bleeding so bad. Well, like a highly diabetic poor cousin, too. Yeah. I mean, this was their one shining moment. Yeah. It was, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's bravery or foolishness or a little bit of both that led this. I think, I, 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 think I failed, though, in, in the spirit of the shit-talking in Returning Fire, because as you say this, I realized I had, as this assumed Georgia Southern fan, I had all of the, I had every upper hand, I had every advantage, and yeah. I, I didn't say anything. So, um, so at an airport last year, I don't know, last spring at some point, it was probably during basketball season still, I was walking through an airport. I guess maybe I just wear Mizzou stuff when I'm, in, when I'm traveling so, you know, I can connect with fellow Mizzou fans out there. Um, I, was, I, I passed a Kansas guy. We both had a moment because I was wearing a Mizzou basketball shirt. He was wearing a Kansas football shirt. And... You know, it was one of those where your eyes light up like, oh, well, I'm going to talk, uh, I'm going to, I get to, you know, engage here. And then we kind of realized, oh, well, <sighs> and then just kind of moved on. Like there, there was not a word said. We just both lit up and then 
didn't because what what can you possibly talk about Kansas football or sadly <laughs> Missouri basketball at the moment? It's very hard to translate a lot of what we do online and and on social media to a quick real world interaction because you're always you know far less witty off the cuff. In oh God, person. yeah, I've got nothing in person. You know, like the like the the best most informed barb that you could deliver on Twitter is never going to translate to like some random guy in a bar or an airport. It's it's very unfortunate because we deep down you just you're filled with this like internet tough guy regret afterwards and be like I could have mentioned that they didn't have any pass attempts in that game. I was I was gonna say Godfrey, if you ever see this guy again at, in a similar situation, throw him your gym towel and after he catches it, say there. That's George Southern's first pass completion. <laughs> he does look like a guy who would immediately immediately strike me right above the knee, <laughs> and then and then once once I'm reduced being much taller than this individual, once I'm reduced, uh, would kick me in the head a lot. Yeah, that, uh, there is a dirty fight element to the Florida fan base. I won't lie about that. Other than, like, bodybuilding.com, I feel like this guy's got, I don't know, maybe, like, a really involved fan page for the band Crazy Town, something like that. <laughs> like, he knows a lot of three three eleven song titles. Like he could give you a set list without looking at his phone. You can't you can't rule out that he wasn't in three eleven. This is true. By the way, just to, for the spirit of having our shutdown fullback guest, that band, that band is as like popular now. It has that weird bottle world longevity of like you know the jam bands, mm-hmm. which makes sense to me because it's holdover hippies and people want to be hippies. So if you grew up in the south, like widespread panic or. You know, if you grew up anywhere, Dave Matthews Band, there are people like that who go to 311 concerts. There are people like that who have to get sitters to go to 311 concerts, and it's like their 150th concert. Now, I shouldn't marvel at some sort of subculture because the world is filled with them now. It's just I do marvel at a subculture of like a 38-year-old corporate lawyer arranging his vacation policy around 311 tour dates. That some, that what I just said, that exists somewhere. OAR. Yeah. Really? I think so. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, uh, the the best comparison I have is I have uh, I had friends from upstate New York who would go well out of their way, way to go see the bare naked ladies. They'd be like, "I've seen the bare naked ladies twelve times." I'm like, really? I, I don't think I can name five bare naked ladies songs. Oh, okay. Wait. Well, we're not going to go there because uh, you know that that was in my wheelhouse in like 1999. But uh, that that well, was that's fine. That's, that makes sense in 1999. That's over 15 years ago, Bill. Well, I'm just saying, like, if it if, if a song from 1999, Bare Naked Ladies, you know, their their discography comes on, I'll probably be able to sing along to it if I want to, well, even that's, now. That's fine. I paid cash money for a Collective Soul CD, but I'm not going to a Collective Soul concert in 2016. Hey, man, you would recognize a lot of those songs. I, I, I came to after being under the influence of a variety of elements and was at a music festival and looked up and, hey, there's Third Eye Blind. But I was also like 19. That's you can do anything. It could have been it could have been Harry Connick Jr. It could have been Young Thug. It doesn't matter if you're 19. You can write any of that off. Except I do stand back. I stand by the, the, the character building experience that was my first concert because it was Reba. And she changed outfits like 22 times. No lie. My first was Oak Ridge Boys. Wow. <laughs> By the way, OAR, uh, of a revolution, I should say. 
Um, 63.9 Twitter followers. So it's not like, you know, 8.6 million or something. You didn't, you know, you're not stumbling across, but they, they are on tour currently. Apparently they're Wait, letting they fans pick million the set. Twitter followers? No, they have 63.9 thousand. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so a very hardcore community. Right. We, we didn't stumble into some amazingly ridiculous, um, size here, but regardless, they are on tour and they're letting their fans pick the set lists for each show. Apparently. So, I think that we have stumbled onto a small college football topic here because Ryan isn't, is it sister Hazel that's from Gainesville? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Okay. Everybody, almost every college town has one of these bands that is like far, far past whatever moment they were going to have. And like the pop radio landscape. But if you go to these college towns, they're still gods. Like they can, uh, so what the one I'm thinking of is better than Ezra because if you go to Baton Rouge, better than Ezra is like gospel. They could still like they've. They, they, I think they sold out Tiger Stadium. Yes, I. They, I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend this was yesterday. It was like 2004, but I ended up at a Better Than Ezra concert like later after college, and I recognized every single damn one of those songs, and I thought I knew like three. So power I mean, to them. If you were a young white SEC graduate between like 1995 and 2010, you you legally had to go to five or six Better Than Ezra concerts. This is. It's, it's, these are the bands that the like House of Blues in Orlando exists solely to give like a rotating venue to. It's, it's pretty exciting. Uh, I just paused and figured out whether or not I wanted to tell a story about being in the House of Blues in Orlando. We're You're just going to go to reader questions. <laughs> oh, I've already ruined your show. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, okay, let me scroll through. All right, got racism in two of them. Going to skip those. Um, oops, skipping that. Okay. Um, oh man, I apologize to Ryan. He's gonna have to carry the weight on some of this because I feel like we've been infected with fullback questions. Um, uh, our friend Billy Gamilla asks, which head coach is most likely to be a craft beer guy? Now, keeping with fullback, I think I won't use any insider knowledge on this. Um, but I think I do know some, I'm trying to, I think I do know coaches that are into craft beer. Um, the guy who goes to the brewery tour. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. It's actually a smaller cut than I think people would realize how plain most coaches' tastes are in everything. Oh yeah, uh, I, I assume I assume most coaches follow the the roughly Nick Saban pattern of I like to eat these four things and only those four things. I feel like if you're if you're looking at someone who wants to diagnose an IPA, you're going to have to go west. I would I I could see Cliff Kingsbury falling into this category of oh yeah definitely on, only in the sense that not necessarily that he actually well like many people I don't know that he necessarily likes craft brew more than other people uh, more than uh, macro breweries rather but I do think that he likes would like being a craft brew guy well I think for sure he's probably tried to impress a woman in the last two years by going to a, like a craft cocktail bar right. that has happened yes a hundred percent. Uh, I can't think of any, I mean, uh, just kind of right off the SEC and the Big Ten outright. Um, I feel like I, I see Chris Peterson as, as something close to my dad in which that he's seen this on the news. Mm-hmm. And then he went to Sam's Club and he got the Sam Adams mixer box. Right. So there's like a, a there's like an Oktoberfest in there and an IPA. He's tried, a, he's tried a Goose Island once at a TGI Fridays. And he's going to tell you about it. Yeah. It was pretty good. It was uh there's no Bud Diesel, but it was, a, it was a little different. It was a good change of pace. 
Um, Mark Hudspeth is definitely a, like a Mick Ultra guy. Oh, without a doubt. Which yeah. is a shame. He's the guy who that, that entire commercial was created for, where he where he's sitting on the couch and goes, oh, wow, there's only 64 calories, and then immediately does the math on how many he can slam. Which is a true shame because Louisiana Lafayette, they have their own, like, branded beer. Yes, I've, I, I drank that uh, during the holidays. I actually had um, a shout-out to Raging Cajun Rebel, an old uh, Every Day Should Be Saturday commentator, and I think he's still on Twitter, um, brought – my in-laws, because uh, he lives outside of Lafayette, he brought a six-pack of that beer. Not bad. Not bad. Um, Michael Underwood asks, would you rather be stuck in an elevator or be stuck on a ski lift? Elevator. I don't know what college football relevance this has, but we're going to go with it. Wait, wait, uh, hold on. Bill Bill said elevator too sweet, and I'm really curious why that was such an easy decision for you. Because you can scary. pretend you're on the ground in an elevator. You don't have to actually... Like you're just in a little space that you can just kind of close your eyes. If you're in a ski lift, you know you're a thousand feet up in the air. Bill, how many ski lifts have you been on? Okay, a hundred feet up in the air, fifty <laughs> feet up in the air, twenty thousand feet up in the air. Because the advantage, and and maybe this is the Florida in me as well. The advantage of the ski lift is if I get sick of it, I can leave. Now, <laughs> I am going to pay a potential price for that, and I'm not excited about it. But Possibly broken ankles. Right. Whatever, but the elevator—who God knows how long you're going to be in there. I know I would never actually leave if the if the, if I were to potentially pay a price in ankles. So I'm I'm comfortable just being in the elevator, closing my eyes, playing on my phone, pretending I, I'm somewhere else. I mean, the, I think yeah. Go ahead. No, I I I don't have a good or witty answer. I just I think the claustrophobia pushes me to a point where I have to say ski lift, and I don't even ski. Yeah. yeah, it'd be weird to get caught on a ski lift if you don't ski. Well, the other the other factor is you have to account for are you are you on the ski lift alone? Are you in the elevator alone? Am I in the elevator with fifteen other people? Am I on the ski lift with a stranger or a, a person I don't like? There are a lot of social components here that this question doesn't really dive into. Yeah, I'll go pop culture and I'll say that every time you're trapped in an elevator, there's either a murder type situation with another person in the elevator. Right. Or you're trying to evade a, a force like a zombie type situation. Right. Again, that's going to speak more to my claustrophobia. The only thing I can think of a ski lift is there was an episode of the X Files where Mulder got trapped going up a mountain on one of those things, and he seemed to manage it just fine. So, as in modeling most of my life around Fox Mulder, I'm going to go ski lift. We're going to find your sister one day, Godfrey. I swear. She's in Jackson. <laughs> uh, we got. <laughs> I think uh, I, I hate I hate to carry this flag through our program, but uh, Bryant Covelli asks Purdue. Poor Purdue. Let me tell you about athletic director Morgan Burke. <laughs> Everybody, sit down, get a snack. No, I actually, I mean, I think we've I, I think we have absolutely positively exhausted the amount of conversation we can have about Purdue at this point. We we went deep a couple of times. I so still I, say that I still say Wake Forest is in a worse situation. Yes, in all in all football and, and athletic seriousness, I think that um, I think the dead cat bounce that the money in the Big Ten affords you. Look at Rutgers, um, but a, a Rutgers fan would be, I think, the most prone to throw roadkill at someone. Um, at least in the Big Ten. I was about to say Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see soon. Um, uh, yeah, as bad as things have been at Purdue, I still feel like you could probably structure a return faster than you could at Wake. Although Wake is closer to better recruiting. 
So here's my question, because I follow neither recruiting nor have the insight to actually say which of these teams is closer. From a fan psychology perspective, who do you think is in a healthier place? Average Purdue fan or average Wake Forest fan? Wake. Really? Are they good in basketball, Bill? No, they no. haven't. I, well, I don't think so. They, they got really bad in basketball for a little while. But hmm. I think when uh, the thing Wake has going for it, so to speak, is that they know their fan ba- their, their uh, alumni base is like 18 people. And you know, that, was the, that was my favorite when I spoke to Jim Grobe a couple of years ago. That was my favorite line he used was that uh, Michigan has more living alumni than we have alumni. And so I think when you, when you understand it, here is our limitation, we're really not going to be able to punch our way out of this very frequently. I think there's a piece that comes with that. Purdue, obviously, you know, for whatever, you know, academics, alumni size, et cetera, maybe they, they are limited in the same ways, but they aren't wake. I don't, I, at least I certainly don't think they are. Um, and so I think just the, the lack of size there, I, I think that comes with a little piece. So do you think the average Purdue fan thinks, yeah, this should be a every year bowl game team under the right stewardship? Yes. Wow. That's I think so. Well, and, and I mean, you know, any of these teams should, you know, with a, with a decent hire, right. um, be able to make six and six or seven and five. But um, I think, you know, I, I think it was very clear how high above his weight class or their weight class Jim Grobe was punching there for a couple of years. And um, my, my sense is that Wake Forest fans have a, a, at least a slightly better no – no fan base has a good sense of reality, but I think they have a slightly better sense of reality than, than others do. It is an amazing aberration, the, the, the Orange Bowl Wake Forest thing. Yeah, as, I mean, as, as more time goes on, that one sticks out more and more. Right. I mean, it's like so many other things, like where you have to peak, you have to be really, really good, and then you need a, a couple of powerhouses to suddenly not be good. I mean, that was I, I, I have amazingly fond uh, recollections of that 2007 Missouri team, but there's no question that they benefited from the fact that Nebraska had taken a few steps backward, that, that Texas had a freshman quarterback, uh, that all these other things were happening. So not only did they peak, but the, the runway was a little clear. Only, only Oklahoma got in their way. So um, I, I think there is a part of that when you're when you're at a, a team that isn't, or when you're at a program that isn't one of those top tier teams, you probably need a little help. Oof! I got. Hey, I, I, oh, that was a jokey one word answer or one word question. We actually got something out of it more so than anybody else. Um, Idaho, Purdue. We're hitting all the bases here. Um, Okay, I'll ask the racism question. Why not? Um, <laughs> it wasn't actually that bad. I saw it. <laughs> uh, Justin Killall is a uh, frequent question asker. Uh, say racism isn't an issue at any team in the past can play anyone. What matchup would you like to see? See, because Bill, he said the word race. Plug your book. This is where you plug your That's book. True. That's true, Bill. Because he said the word race, that automatically got me thinking in a certain direction. Um, but, no, you know, like one of the cornerstones of this book is that I get to actually spend a ton of words talking about 1959, uh, Ole Miss and Syracuse. Um, 
Ole Miss, like one of the best teams of all time. They only lost because Billy Cannon had the most amazing punt return of all time, or one of them. Um, they gave up three touchdowns all year. Two of them were drives in, that started inside the Ole Miss ten. Like all these, all these tidbits I can throw out, and I think I have on this podcast before. That was an amazing team. Uh, but even if they were undefeated, uh, even if they hadn't lost to LSU uh, via punt return and, and like eight goal line stands or something like that. They still wouldn't have been. They wouldn't have played old, uh, Syracuse because uh, because of very very obvious reasons. Syracuse was maybe the only team in the '50s that was better than Ole Miss that year, um, or in in that decade. Uh, but we would ne- we were never going to see that matchup because uh, you know Ernie Davis and some other Syracuse players were very much the wrong race. So um, that sucks. <laughs> Just from a general uh, fan standpoint, that would have been one of the great uh, matchups from a stat standpoint or anything else, but it wasn't going to happen uh, because Ole Miss wasn't going to play them. I would go for more of the science fiction level of taking two teams from different time periods yeah. and having to play because I'm so sick of that argument. And it's this real dumb talk radio thing where people, I think people who do debate this also feel like it, it's something that we all care about like you just get it a lot on would this team beat this team and if it's more than a 10-year gap i think it's almost yeah impossible it's to yeah. even the, the sport has changed so much so if possible stage it do it and then be done with it but i mean i don't think there's any possible way in which the the older team would would triumph i don't think it's uh, i mean I, 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 for if, if i gave you a 15-year gap bill and you took this year's Alabama team and 2000 Oklahoma. Yeah, it's almost it's, it almost feels like cheating to use anything uh, re, the, like it involves uh, recent Alabama teams. Yeah, so, 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 so to be clear, Bill just said that recent Alabama teams amount to cheating, right? <laughs> Correct. That's oh, <laughs> oh, oh, here's a good one, though. Thanks what about 2001 Miami versus 2015 Alabama? Mm. That's almost a 15-year gap. And now we're in, now we're immediately in the dumb bar argument territory. Yeah, <laughs> and you got us here. <sighs> All because you wanted to talk about racism. Hi, <laughs> Teddy. By the way, speaking of of the race thing, though, uh, the obvious answer here would be, uh, you know, the 60s and 70s Grambling teams, the 60s and 70s Southern teams, Jackson State, Alcorn State, all these teams that were kind of at their peak. Uh, especially in maybe the '60s, when certain areas of the country weren't necessarily taking a lot, taking on a lot of the black players, um, that would have been that. That's the old like Negro League versus MLB kind of argument that you know is is really really interesting to think about. But there's never going to be an answer because how how would you possibly have an answer? Uh, we're out of uh, Twitter questions for the moment. I do have some books on email to read. Just tell me when. Yeah, we'll go ahead and fire on those. We'll have to. Uh, uh, We'll weave Ryan into the tapestry of the minutia of the show. So this is what you could have, Ryan. You could have um, – I got two very long emails last night, um, which, again, we love because this proves that we are kind of uh, – you know, we are therapy for each other and for others by just uh, being willing to talk about long topics. So podcast ain't played nobody question from our friend Jeff. I had a question for you guys on the podcast. I think you've heard. I think I've heard you guys make a comment a couple of times uh, that you don't want to beat up on UVA too much for the Mendenhall hire. Godfrey, that was mostly Godfrey. 
Um, but I haven't heard you guys really go into detail there. Can you elaborate some? I'm a UVA alum. I grew up in a Virginia Tech family, was a Tech fan until I left for college. At a time when the state was more evenly split between the programs, late 90s, uh, I completely agree that the Fuente hire was a home run for Tech, and I'm very jealous of that situation. But while I'm not necessarily sold on Bronco, I think I kind of understand the rationale and think the fit isn't all that bad. I think the idea is that UVA, as a program, it, it is a program that will always have issues recruiting at a level similar to its peers due to academic standards and an administration that seems less willing to make exceptions for athletes than other schools. Uh, that disadvantage might be overstated by some of our alums, but I think it's still a factor. I think the plan then is to follow a similar mold to what Harbaugh did when he came to Stanford when he was Jim Harbaugh and not Jim Harbaugh football god. Uh, leverage the national academic brand of your school, cast a wide net for kids who have FBS talent and are attracted to your academic brand name. Don't ignore your natural recruiting turf, but be willing to reach out to all comers of the country and be creative in how you use your recruiting budget. Now granted, UVA's national brand may not quite be at the level of Stanford's, but, uh -huh. I, think, but I think it's a decent idea. And in Mendenhall, you have a guy who's used to dealing with some handcuffs in terms of recruiting and who's accustomed to having to recruit on a broader geographic scale. He's kept a couple of guys on staff who were pretty good recruiters in the, in the Virginia region and the Ruffin McNeil hire seems to be a real coup. It's true that his team's on-field performances have been solid, but unspectacular. And I guess that's the main source of my skepticism. But I, my point is, why do you guys perceive this as a quote unquote bad hire? I don't think he'll be winning any titles in Charlottesville, but I feel better about the outlook for him in terms of longevity and re results compared to expectation than I do uh, for Rick in Miami, where the pressure will be on from day one. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So I think, I, Godfrey, I think you've said. I, I got everything. Yeah, I, I, I was with him until that. Um, all right, Bill, uh, let's work backwards. Um, well, comparing the programs is why you feel better about Rick at Miami. The expectation is, is there. It's not as bad as Rick's successor at Georgia. Um, and the talent pool from which you draw the history, the ability to recruit, and it's Miami. It still is Miami. Um, so that's definitely why I would feel like Rick to Miami is a much better hire. But I don't think Mina Hall's a bad hire. I do think that the the um, uh, when he said, "What did he?" Well, I don't know what the words he said. Handcuffs at yeah. BYU. I think undersells it, um, <laughs> and he makes a good point. One that I should walk back, and that's that. We've never seen Mendenhall recruit without those extreme, insane restrictions, as well as the perception bias and everything else that goes against BYU. However, I do think he's a victim of how well and uh, how exciting that fit is across the state. It's a program that's dominated them pretty much for the past, what, ever? 25 years? I mean, all, all through the modern era. Um it, again, I think it's just a it's a symptom of, of comparative analytics more than anything else. Bronco himself is a, is is not that bad a coach at all. Um, but it, the BYU thing always has an asterisk next to it because of the uniqueness of the schedule, because of the, the talent pool that they pull up, all that stuff. So I, I mean, I don't know. I think the BYU job is pretty hard. I read a, um, an interview it was within the last couple of weeks where um, well Bronco kind of opened up about it. He's like, I, I was just I'm pretty sure I was pretty sure I had taken BYU as far as I could, and I didn't exactly know where we wanted to go or where I could take us regarding the independence and all of that stuff. Um, no, I mean, I, for, for me, it just comes down to, you know, you look at Fuente, you think, ah, oh, man, that's an awesome hire. Mark Rick, that's absolutely an upgrade. And, and you go through the list, but it, it, the ACC made so many really, really impressive hires that the fact that Mendenhall only seems like a good hire kind of puts him to the end of the list. Um, now, did, Bill, did he ask, why can't we be Stanford? 
No, he just said he thinks that might be kind of the approach that they're going to take. What you know, where um, you kind of sell yourself nationally, you you involve your academic reputation to some degree, um, and you try to become. You, you're not going to try. You're not going to win many of the local battles, so you cast a really wide net like Stanford did. That's admirable and not the worst idea I've heard. It's dangerous to cut yourself off or or accept defeat when you're talking about the Tidewater. You still need to have a presence there. I don't think the admission standards are quite as much of a battle as they are at Stanford. I could be wrong. I know Virginia is a hard school to get into, but I don't think it's just from a non-athletic standpoint. I know that there's more applications um, that come into Stanford. I think it's the most applied to school in the nation now. Um, uh, that's I'm okay with that, but that plan's going to take ten years. Just if you're a Virginia fan and you were pissed off at Mike London for hovering around 500, just, you know, if, if Bronco wants to build a Stanford, you're going to look at some bad, bad years for a little well, bit. I don't know if hovering around 500 was London's problem so much as, you know, hovering around, you know, 333 or something. But, um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just I didn't like to hire quite as much as the others. That was pretty much it. I think it could work. I, I, and, you know, if if you do think you're handcuffed at all academically, then obviously having a guy who knows how to maneuver through a weird pool of potential recruits um, is certainly not a bad thing. Um, yeah, th- we'll just... The thing I don't understand about... I mean, the Stanford comparison gets thrown around anytime you're talking about a... Quote Vander- unquote, Vanderbilt, Northwestern. Well, yeah, I mean, any of the academic heavy hitters who have sort of struggled in football and where I think it falls apart for a lot of the schools that want to say, Oh, we're just going to, you know, follow the Stanford model. It's not as if Jim Harbaugh stepped into a Stanford program that had no history of success. I mean, they had, they had certainly had down years when he entered the fray, but you know, you look back and you say, Oh, this is a team that had been to, Several Rose Bowls under different coaches. This is a team that you know was could could say reliably, yeah. Every now and then, we're going to have a really nice little nine win season. I mean, they're the whole reason Ty Willingham got the Notre Dame job. So I think what that sort of ignores is that Stanford does have a football history that some places, maybe like Vanderbilt, maybe like UVA, they don't have as much of that to lean on. And, and Counter- it just sort of ignores that factor for some reason. Counterpoint. Yeah. We're really good at winning seven games under George Welsh and Al Groh. Okay. Uh, Fair. <laughs> not, 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 I don't know about 10. Let's see. When's the last? They won 10 and 89. Yeah. Uh, seven and five season in the ACC is like, that, that's just a state required booster shot. That's one. Okay. So they've won 10 games once in their, in their, uh, FBA, FBS history, it looks like, but they, they went to a, I mean, they were just, they were consistently like seven and four, seven and five under Welsh for the most part. Right. And you know, that, you know, if that's, if that's good enough, then, you know, that, you know, it, it's, it's all depends on your definition of history, I guess. Here's, here's the other question I want to ask. And I know you guys have talked about BYU's schedule. Does Bronco Mendenhall, how, how is Bronco Mendenhall facing a tougher schedule at UVA? In this in this season, just in 2016, than he would have had he stayed with BYU. I really don't know the answer to that. I'm looking at them, and it's kind of a weird toss-up. Bill, I'm sorry. I'm 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 now pulling up 2016 Virginia schedule. Uh, I mean, they they do have to go to Oregon. They do go to Oregon in week two. Oregon at Duke, at Wake, at Georgia Tech, at Virginia Tech, home against Miami, Louisville, North Carolina, Pitt. 
Central Michigan, Richmond. Um, I mean, that's not easy. I, I do. You, the thing about BYU schedule is, the, you know, especially this uh, in 2015, lots more, like, quite a few impressive, like blue blood slash heavyweight type of, or at least light heavyweights, and then some lightweights mixed yeah, in yeah. from the former WAC and whatnot. So it's kind of hard to, it is kind of hard to compare. The ACC is, it's unique because you have this whole collection of teams with the same private expectation, and they would never say this publicly, but you have at the very top Florida State, Clemson, you have Miami and Virginia Tech who have fallen off, but have, they, they have national expectations, top 15 rankings. So you have those four teams, and then you have this huge pool of teams that secretly just want to be like kind of good enough. They just... They, they, they want to sit at the popular table. They don't want to run the show. They're totally fine telling the homecoming queen she looks the prettiest and all that. Like, they don't – if they could do nine wins consistently or eight, eight to nine with, like, a ten win every five years, they would be ecstatic. So, like, NC State, Virginia, even, you know, Boston College. Um, there's so many of these schools that I think that the athletic directors actually have pretty realistic expectations privately. It's just that you can't sell that publicly at all. Maryland was right there until they left. I just looked up last year's strength of schedule numbers. It looks like Virginia was tougher last year, at least. I don't know about this year. And, you know, numbers are always right. So, God, Idaho, Virginia, Purdue. This is, this is the offseason. This is our wheelhouse. This is I mean, the offseason. Season. I haven't even gotten to the next one. I can say this, but last week we had Feldman on the show. We we get him in a digression about like school. Uh, it was a good. It was we were having a good conversation about Nebraska leaving. It started with Nebraska leaving the Big Twelve, going to the Big Ten, how it hurt them because they can't recruit Texas as effectively. And then we start talking about what it's like to recruit Texas or California when you're one of those far-flung Western schools. And then I, I asked, like, has Bruce two or maybe three Wyoming questions in a row? <laughs> and you could just hear his – you could see, you could hear his brain not, like – it's almost like he wanted to stop the show and say, why are we doing this? It was like trying to start a really old lawnmower. Yes. <laughs> it's not like he didn't have the information because he immediately fired off with, like, some anecdote about Josh Doxon. It was just like – you could just hear his, the incredulity of, <laughs> why, why are you taking me down this path? He'll be ready next time, though. A year from now, we'll bring him back on, and he'll know <laughs> that this is, this is the landscape we cover. And, and I just realized... Was straight fire about Colorado and Wake Forest next time he's on this show. <laughs> and, and by the way, um, I just looked up the, the, the other big, long question I got. It's, uh, it appears to be about Ball State. Hell Yes. You ready? Go. Oh, boy. Okay. Hit, hit us. Our friend Ben. Uh, this might be more of a Godfrey question, he says, but I thought it was interesting. We know that college football has the longest program building process of any major sport. No free agents, off, uh, often longer development curves, and, and one big addition cannot swing things like in college basketball. Yeah, we're seeing less patience in giving coaches a standard four or five years to get things in place. Is it just impatience, and is it that wise for administrations purportedly taking the long view? Uh, beyond that, what kind of behind-the-scenes things do ADs look for to say things are not going as, uh, as they should after two or three years? Also... Um, 
This, <laughs> this alternate history is probably a bit small time, but it's heavy on mid-majors and fringe Power 5 teams, so I thought you might enjoy it. Back in January of 2013, Ball State, which I covered at the time, uh, was trying to keep its recruiting class intact, especially the jewel of the class, a talented DB out of Detroit who posted a pretty big senior season. Less than a week before signing day, a Big Ten school came in and flipped the kid. Uh, they might have missed on a bigger target, so they jumped in, and that's how Desmond King ended up at Iowa. Uh, if Ball, State's hold, Ball State holds on to King, things get weird. Ball, Ball State went 10-2 and two that year despite a Mac mediocre defense. Pete Limbo came close to get to a better job. He just missed Wake Forest after Clawson impressed with a Mac title. Um, that year they were very, there were very few openings because of Coach Churn the previous two seasons, and he was stuck in Muncie. Since King started 10 games as a true freshman with the Hawkeyes, it's likely the same at Ball State, making him a top three, uh, making the top three cornerback spots all better. There's no guarantee, but that probably improves the def- defense enough to not blow a 16-point lead at North Texas. Um, and it's it, let's see. And Ball State played right within NIU most of the game that year before the Huskies pulled away. So, but NIU was also probably too good. Uh, it's hard to see the coach of an 11 win MAC team not getting a bite ahead of Clawson or even Bob Diaco. And you probably have Limbo still enjoying the early grace period somewhere rather than watching his program regress and ducking out of town to join Maryland staff. If he ends up at Wake Forest, then Clawson can't leave, which means Dino Babers can't get a, the job or inherit Matt Johnson, which means he probably needs more than two years to get the Power Five leap. Ball State I think would, I'm going to have a seizure. Ball State would be open. And with the old AD's Notre Dame ties, he'd have been in position to make a run at Chuck Martin, who ended up in Miami that year. There's not, that's nothing to say of the fact that King wouldn't be at Iowa, which probably puts a dent in that season. Um, so that was long, but I was close to it and found it interesting. The King thing has always stuck with me, and it was one of the first things to pop in my head when Limbo departed to join up at Maryland. Thanks for reading this far, uh, if you have, and keep up the good work. What I, so, okay. oh. Godfrey, you're familiar with the uh, the comic book trope of what if, where you take, like... Yeah, yeah. Oh, is, man, I, li- I live for that. This is like that, but... It's it's instead of like what if Spider Man and Wolverine had grown up as brothers or some, something like that. It's more like what if Aunt May made pea soup instead of chicken noodle. Yes. <laughs> are you saying are you saying Pete Limbo is pea soup? <laughs> I just we're talking about how Pete Limbo missed out on the Wake Forest and Connecticut jobs. It's it's, it's so it's, it's such a it's fun a butterfly. I, I enjoy it. No, I and I enjoy that we can do that, but. I mean, just from a just from an emotional perspective, if your life tips on whether or not you got the Wake Forest job, you need to re-examine your priorities. It is a um, good, it's I'm a sure good I'm reminder sure. that you better jump when you have the chance. Yes, it is that. I'm so struggling here to to pull a salient point. Um, not to the question. I think it's the first time the question has beaten us, Bill, because we've been bragging lately about how far we can deal back on my new ship but oh um the only winning move is not to play Godfrey. No. i i will this will do this do this summer what is what do you think is the single like question out of that well i mean there's not it was more just here you might enjoy this i think the main point is that everybody's got alternate history um yes and to tie it back to my book <clears throat> That's why I wanted to write the book I'm writing and not the 50 best teams book, because in the book I'm writing, I get to talk about, I, I, there's going to be a chapter on Miami, Ohio, uh, and the, you know, university of Tampa and like random good mid majors along with, you know, the Purdue's and Missouri's and, and kind of the second tier or whatever school schools. And then of course the Alabama's and the Notre Dame's, um, 
I wanted to write that book because everybody, every school, whether we pay attention or not, has a thousand-page history book of things that they care about and recruits they missed out on and, and the random recruit that swung in their favor and it ended up being in a conference title and whatnot. Uh, we all have those stories, and that's what uh, that kind of that's what sucks me into the vortex here. Um, it's a lot more fun to pay attention to 128 teams. It's impossible to to pay attention to 128 teams, but it's a lot more fun to try than just focus on like 12 schools. I will say this: uh, coaches uh, will tell me all the time about the what if scenarios that it's more about, and the super honest ones will relate it to their jobs. But it's where this whole coach total control psycho Saban thing comes from where they think the more control that they can effectively exert, the less variables will ever be at play in their lives and in their careers and their, their, their programs. So, for instance, if it's kid gets in trouble in the middle of a game week in October and they lose that one extra game, well, that means they could have gone to this bowl and the coach could have gotten this exposure and that means they could have done this and then a bonus would have kicked in and then it, maybe he would have lost his offense coordinator and that they do talk like that. They do think like that, uh, kind of the same way fans do when they're exercising these hypotheticals. Um, and it is the root cause of the totalitarian aspiration of most major program coaches is to eliminate it, all of these potential scenarios. Yeah, no, through I, through discipline, through through player discipline, discipline first and foremost, through media messaging. Um, and then you go on down the line. No, that's the one thing I've absolutely like. Every time I uh, you write another coach feature, the, every time I talk to more coaches, the thing you realize above all else is they just don't have as much control over things as we like to think they do. Yeah. Um, not everybody is Saban, basically. Um, and maybe that's why, you know, people from the Saban tree don't always succeed is, you know, the, just because they've witnessed it doesn't mean they can do it too. <laughs> but right. No, I mean, we just we, we think that our, our, our head coach has control over all these things and that this little thing that happened, this little incident was totally intentional and dirty and da-da-da-da-da when they probably didn't even have a damn clue what was going on. So, so let me bring it around to a question of sorts. Who, let's take Pete Limbo as the example of guy who didn't, and maybe not be, because of any choices he made, just maybe the opportunity didn't present right. itself, but guy who didn't jump when jumping was good. Who are those coaches that we could be saying that about at the end of this season? That we say, you know, he really missed his window, and now he's just sort of squandered uh, the opportunity to play in the big leagues. So, okay, I got one. Uh, what if my numbers are at least a little bit right about Houston? Mm-hmm. What if they were lucky last year? And what if they have bad luck this year? Ward gets hurt in the first or second game. They get bad, you know, fumbles luck, this, this, that, and that, and they go eight and four. And Charlie Strong bombs and the Texas job's open. Or what if Houston was like seven and five and six and six? Six and six is a concern. As long as he maintains. um, Well, you know, I say that, Bill. I think a lot of important people would look at how they perform against Oklahoma in the first week. What if Ward gets hurt and they lose 45 to 6? Well, what if they go 9 and 3 but they lose to Oklahoma by 45? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's good. I like that. Uh the one I've seen recently that the window is completely closed is Mark Hudspeth. Yeah. He was one that was mentioned for a lot of the next step up type jobs and had always been talked about. Whenever Dan Mullen would gear up his his rotation of of interviews, everyone talked about Hudspeth going to Mississippi State. Um, 
So he's the one that I think where the windows closed because of the NCAA sanctions and, and also they've plateaued down there. I think the best answer is Tom Herman. Um, Tim, Tim DeRuiter feels like he's in this category now. Yeah, like, that's true. I think that's a, that, I think that job was they have stunk in the last yeah. game. That job was something else when he was an assistant and looking at now, keep in mind, Tim, he left the lame duck staff. Right. So it's not like, I mean, he landed a head coaching gig when Sherman was getting fired. So, um, now that I don't know if he's Bill can, I mean, is there a three-year plan for Fresno to build something where he gets out of there? Um, it would take three years. I think they've been, are they just a product of the whack? They, no, they, no, no, no. I mean, I, I just think they, they got worse. I don't think it was a question of like, now they're in a different level of competition. I think they just, um, he did not inherit much. Um, or at least, well, the, the stuff he did inherit was like, you know, they were seniors. And so he was able to kind of hit the ground running, <clears throat> but he hasn't been able to figure out the quarterback situation. Um, and, and a lot of the things we thought that Fresno State would always have, suddenly they don't. So I, I don't think it's anything that <clears throat> can't, can't be overcome, but it, I, I don't think there's a quick road back either. I mean, anytime you're in California, you can probably, if you recruit well enough, if you get lucky on certain kids, then you can have decent depth and athleticism. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a perfectly okay job, but uh, it's going to take him a couple of years to get back now if he survives. The smartest one in terms of like, excuse me, waiting on your window. I mean, if Chad Morris gets to six wins this year or five wins and A&M's open or Texas is open, yeah, that's the most, that may be one of the most tactical moves I've ever seen because he was offered a ton of jobs. Saban quits and Swinney goes to Alabama and Clemson's open. I mean, you know, and then Kirby gets his, you know, dream job or whatever. But again, I just think the expectation level there, it's, I don't know if that's necessarily about missing a window, though. Um, those are the ones that jump out at me. Uh, I'm trying to think of guys that should have left who didn't. It doesn't happen a lot anymore, honestly. Do you think Skip Holtz thought he was going to get a little more chalk this year? I don't yeah. know what his thoughts are. You think so? I think so. It's a weird place, man. That thing is like a vacuum for players, for, for everybody. I thought Driscoll would get more attention in the early year. I, thought. I mean, like, like first year, for the first last year, they go 9-5, and five, and maybe everybody can say, well, you know, I'm not buying into this. I saw what happened at the end of USF. They went 9-4 and four again, and, man, it just felt like his name never came up for anything. I think if... I mean, Will Muschamp notwithstanding, which is this huge asterisk next to what I'm about to say, I think if you fail in Florida, it's a big, big mark against you. But Florida's only about failure as a state. (laughs) Yeah, except in this one way. (laughs) Man, I I hadn't really thought about it that way, but Randy Shannon still hasn't gotten a head coaching job. Well, yeah, I mean, where's Al Golden ever going to go? Yeah. Temple. I mean, Larry Coker had to to flee and take something. Larry Coker had to start a program. Yeah. (laughs) Huh. Um, don't fail in Florida, fun- kids. Would it be funny if we're saying this about Mike Riley in a couple of years? <laughs> and by funny, I mean really sad and kind of spiteful. I'm fine with both. That's definitely how it feels. Uh, all right, Bill. Have we have we kept Ryan long enough? <laughs> Well, I don't know if that was $1,400 worth, but Probably not. we're about to find out. Well, yeah. actually, let's see. So since we started recording, I've gotten another $25. <clears throat> so now we're looking at $1,445 instead of $1,480 or whatever. So totally different now. Totally different game now. 
And it wasn't it wasn't for me, although that would have been the clever thing to do. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you guys for having me on. This was fun. I got to pretend like I actually knew things, even though I just sat and listened to you guys actually have the knowledge. And you really need to talk about Ball State more on on Fullcast. Just FYI, we'll try. I can't make any promise. Like, like I think Godfrey has already nailed it, which just suggests that we will try to talk about things uh, on Shutdown Fullcast implies that we have a plan. Yeah, <laughs> and we stick to it. Just I've been put, on that show before. Yeah, just put a post-it note that says "Ball State" next to your microphone. Okay, all right. I'll probably just end up screaming "Ball State" then for no reason. <laughs> That's fine. That's okay. fine. Okay, all right, all right. This is if, if to the full cast listeners who are alarmed when I scream "Ball State" for no reason in the middle of a conversation, blame Bill Connolly, but please support his book. Cool. We had our first crossover. Awesome. Okay, <laughs> I think we're done here.